This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, hey, this morning we are going to close out our series in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew here as we continue to uh, learn to live out the way of Jesus by listening to the words of Jesus. And, and, and if we were to summarize this whole sermon series, this, uh, this way of Jesus, I think what we would say is that it is a way of love, isn't it? And a way that humbly loves God and compassionately loves others. Right? It is a way that seeks the good of others and the glory of God. It is a way, Jesus says, of mercy and meekness. It is a way of peace that will likely suffer persecution. It is a way that loves our enemies and prays for those who persecute us. And we've seen over these past couple of weeks that it's a way that is hard. It is a way that few choose to travel. And yet it is the only way that leads to a destination of everlasting eternal life with God. Amen? And as Jesus closes his sermon, what he's going to effectively do is ask us one single question. And that question is how will you respond? How will you respond to all that Jesus has said? How will you respond to all that Jesus has taught? Will you faithfully follow the way of Jesus? That's the question that we are faced with this morning. And there's really only two ways to respond to the words of Jesus, two responses to the words of Jesus, and that is that you can receive them, right, living in faithful obedience to the way of Jesus, or you can reject them. And so how will you respond to the words of Jesus? That's the question we're faced with this morning as we close out our Sermon on the Mount and series in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you haven't already, let's go ahead and let's take out our Bibles and let's turn to them to the New Testament book of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 7. And what Jesus is going to give us this morning is two things. First, he's going to give us an explanation of, of what these responses are. And then he's going to give us an illustration to help illustrate these responses and so Jesus, he begins here with an explanation uh, in verses 21 to 23. Read, look at this with me as I read. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus, he begins this explanation with yet a, another warning, the third warning that we've seen in these last three weeks. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will actually end up entering the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here, he's, he's looking ahead to this day of judgment that will come, a day when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we will all, each and every one of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we will be held accountable, and, and each will receive what is due for what you have done. And what Jesus is saying here is that, um, y'all like surprises? No, yet yeah, some are in for a surprise, though. Some are in for a surprise. They're not going to receive what they were hoping to receive. They're not going to end up at the destination that they thought they were headed towards. They were deceived. They were led astray. Take, for example, let's say um, Cubs fans in the room. Yeah, that's about the right sound. 
If I would ask that question in April, what would have been the answer? Any Cub fans in the room? No, guys, remember, April was a long time ago, but it was good then. We still had people on our team. I don't know anybody now other than Contreras, but imagine, let's say you went to go buy Cubs tickets, which right now are like, I think they're paying us to go to the games. Uh, someone told me this morning they paid six bucks for bleacher tickets. You can't afford not to go. You, you actually, you can, but uh, they're cheap. That's the point. But let's say you go up to Wrigley Field and, and you just buy tickets from a scalper and the guy that sells you these tickets, he's like, man, these are prime seats. That's why you're not paying $6, but $600, okay? Because you didn't know the Cubs were terrible right now. And even though this, like, you notice the section number on there, it's really high. Is that right? Should it be that expensive? He's like, no, 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 trust me. They're club-level seats. They're good seats. Don't worry about it. You have a better view from up there. And so you enter the friendly confines along with like 10 other people right now, and you make your way up the ramps. You know those ramps on the outside? And you go all the way up because you're following the signs to your section number, and you're passing a ton of really good seats, and you notice really good empty seats, but you pass them going to yours until you reach the top, and you, you find your row, and, and you arrive at your seat, and this is what you see. That's what you see. And only then, in the tiny little two-point font on the back on the bottom of your ticket, do you see those dreaded words, obstructed view. You didn't end up where you thought you were going to end up, did you? And Jesus says that there's some who are going to think that they were in. There's going to be some that thought that they had made it, some that thought they had bought the right ticket, but they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're going to find when it is too late that they have been led astray to the wide gate, not the narrow gate. That they traveled the, the easy way with the crowd, not the hard way with the few, and ended up at an entirely different destination than what they had hoped for, a different destination than the ticket that they had purchased. And this warning from Jesus, it is as true for us gathered here this morning as it is for those who were gathered on the side of the hill by the Sea of Galilee some 2,000 years ago. Because it's easy to be deceived in thinking we've got the right ticket already, don't we? It's easy to be deceived in thinking I'm heading in the right direction. I'm good. I got it all taken care of. When in fact, we might not. Because we're prone, I think, to say one of three things to Jesus at times. Number one, I think sometimes we're prone to say to Jesus, listen to what I've said Right? Listen to what I've said, because I have said all the right things. Like the people Jesus describes, we say, Lord, Lord. And we, we, we treat the name of Jesus like it's some secret passcode into the clubhouse, thinking that if we say the right thing, if we pray the right prayer, we are saved, we are in, that that's all that there is. And, you know, I think the church has done a really fantastic job of, of raising up entire generations to believe that all they needed to do was respond to an altar call and pray a prayer. The church for so long has pushed for a decision rather than pursuing discipleship. Treating baptism as the finish line rather than the beginning of a lifelong journey of faithfully following the way of Jesus. And look at what Jesus says here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There must be more than just words. But not only that, number two, we're prone to say to Jesus, look at who I've known. 
Look at who I've known. I know all the right people. Uh, We love to name drop, don't we? We love to name drop, uh, claiming that we know someone we don't really know or even really know at all. Like you pass them by on a sidewalk, and you're like, yeah, I hung out with them that one day, and uh, that was it. Or, you know, I hung out with Chris Bryant that one day. It's because you were sitting in an obstructed view in section 416 while he was in the dugout. Remember when Chris Bryant played for the Cubs? We as God's people must lament at times. Lament is an important rhythm for us. But now we name drop. In my, uh, this means I'm going to give you an illustration of name dropping. Um, in my sales days, when I worked at Motorola, uh, there was a time when I got to hang with some of the absolute coolest people on the planet. You know who those are, right? NASCAR drivers? Right? Amen? No? Okay. Well, check this out. Uh, I got to uh, go to the Daytona 500. That is the Super Bowl uh, of NASCAR that actually starts the year rather than ends the year. And we were uh, doing a sponsorship with Robbie Gordon. So I got to fly back uh, on his private jet with Robbie uh, and his girlfriend. Memorial Day weekend, got to spend the day at Elliot Sadler's lake house on Lake Norman at a party. And I realized y'all are like, who are these people? He thinks he's name dropping, but these, these are just made up people in his head, aren't they? It's okay, you just don't get it, you know? But we do that, we name drop. You know, we, we even name drop with Jesus, don't we? Telling people how, you know, Jesus and I were like that, I met him one day. Portraying that we know someone that we don't actually know. And we do it in a lot of ways. Remember the Christian t-shirt fad a few years ago? Yeah, we wanted everybody to know, me and Jesus, we're good. Got them, we're good. No, I think we, um, there's times we carry our Bible around, that Bible that we might not have read in weeks, months, or years, and we carry it around as a prop, making sure everyone sees. We let everyone know that I'm going to that big church and I, I listen to that famous pastor. Clearly you guys don't because you're here and you're listening to me. Man, you can know a lot of facts about Jesus and not intimately know Jesus at all. And what Jesus says is he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so it must be more than just that. But number three, I think we're also prone to say to Jesus, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. Look at all the the good things that I've done. We're like those where that Jesus says, "Did, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? I mean, who's done that? Have we not done mighty works? Not just works, but mighty works. And when we say that, what we're saying to Jesus is, is, look at all the fruit that I have produced. I didn't just plant the seed or water the seed, man. I harvested that seed. Look at what I've done. Look at all the good I've done. And when we think that and when we say that to Jesus, it is nothing more than works righteousness, is it? Thinking that we are saved by what we do. And we're prone to do this both individually and corporately. We do this individually saying to Jesus, like, look how gifted I am. Look at how hard I have served, how often I've served. Look at how much I've done, how much I've given. I have single-handedly advanced the kingdom of heaven for you. And when we do that, what we do is we treat salvation like a balance sheet, don't we? All the CPAs in the room said, amen, I get where this is headed. But we do, we we treat salvation like a balance sheet. We recognize we're not perfect. We recognize that, that we are sinners for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. I get that. I sinned once. 
I got, some, I got some red ink in that debt column. I understand that, but it's okay. It's okay because you know what? I've offset it with all the black ink in the asset column. I've offset all the sin with all the good that I've done. And not just offset it, but man, I've gone above and beyond. I've doubled the bad with the good. And when we think that way, when we speak like that, what we're saying is that we are good enough to purchase and acquire our own ticket into the kingdom of heaven, aren't we? But we don't just do this individually. I think we also see times where we do this corporately as, a, as churches. We want to advertise the fruit that we've worked so hard to produce. We, uh, the thing is, though, I think many of us have seen and experienced that even a toxic, abusive church can bear fruit. Any, anyone can bear fruit. Christianity Today is doing a podcast on the rise and fall of a, of a rather large church that used to exist in Seattle called Mars Hill. And through each episode, what's interesting is the thing that you keep hearing from those being interviewed as they reflect on their time there is that even though there was so much that was wrong, that they knew, that they saw, that they experienced, the thing they keep saying is, but there was so much fruit. There was so much fruit. The church was growing. People were being baptized in droves. Like, they interviewed the worship leader who was like, we just had to, like, make up songs because people just kept coming to get baptized. Lives were being changed. And at the time, what they're they're recognizing is, at the time, they felt that the, the assets column canceled out the debts column, right? That the fruit justified the hurt that they felt, the abuse that they themselves were encountering, the pain that was being inflicted. But now with with a little bit of time and a little bit of distance to reflect and to to heal, they look back and they see the situation differently. And they recognize that the fruit does not justify the hurt. The fruit does not justify the hurt. Because see, while there were, in fact, lives being eternally changed, there were others being severely damaged. And here's the thing, I... I don't want to stand before Jesus. I don't want us to stand before Jesus. I don't want you to stand before Jesus having to explain and having to justify why you did what we did, why we did what we did, why I did what I did. Individually or corporately, convincing Jesus of our salvation, convincing Jesus with our journal that the assets outweigh the debts, hoping the good cancels out the bad, only to then... Have Jesus look at us and say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so it must be more than just what we do. See, I think what these three things reveal is how often we misunderstand the fruit that Jesus truly desires. The fruit that he desires is of us. It's not simply uh, what we say and what we do. The fruit that Jesus desires, it's not easily measured. You can't just plug it into a spreadsheet and show Jesus, look at what we did. Instead, Jesus says here in this passage that he desires two things of us. Number one, Jesus desires faithful obedience. Right, faithful obedience. He says in verse 21 that those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what's interesting here, notice he, Jesus doesn't doubt the claims by these people. He's not questioning what they did. He's not questioning that they prophesied, that they cast out demons and did mighty works. 
Those, those good things actually occurred. But what Jesus is saying is that they occurred apart from me. They occurred apart from Jesus. Because see, while they may have been done in his name, they were not done for his name. Rather than bringing glory to God, they were done to bring glory to themselves. And they were saying to Jesus, look at what I did. Not what you did through me, but look at what I did. Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases Jesus' words here in, in the message saying, knowing the correct password isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. But all you did was use me to make yourselves look important. Name dropped. While they had professed Jesus as Lord, they never submitted their lives to Jesus as Lord. And I think we're prone to do the same thing at times, replacing faithfully following the way of Jesus with praying a prayer. And hear me, I'm not denying the necessity of a verbal profession of faith, right? Paul, he says in Romans 10, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I don't deny that. Of course that's necessary. But I think that sells you short. That's only part of the story, isn't it? Because Jesus' own half-brother James, he says that this profession of faith, if by itself, if, if it doesn't have works, if it doesn't produce obedience, it is an entirely different kind of faith. It is a dead faith. Remember last year as we were going through the book of James? And we came to that passage, and uh, what we did was we compared living faith in Jesus Christ. We compared it to fresh ground, fresh roasted, beautifully fully caffeinated coffee, a true gift from God that we serve every Sunday. The number of people who comment, I love your coffee. I came back for your coffee another week. Your preaching was okay. It was faithful. It was okay. But I came back for the coffee. Y'all take that seriously. It's live. But then remember how we said faith without works? It is a dead faith. It is an entirely different kind of faith. It is a decaffeinated faith that serves no purpose whatsoever. It is of no value and is nothing more than dark hot water. Ted Lasso might drink tea ahead of decaf coffee. I'm not sure. John Calvin, he says, faith alone saves. That is the truth of God's word, amen? Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. No, it's always accompanied by something. It's always followed by something. And what it is that is accompanied and followed by is faithful obedience, Paul, he says in Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I think we love verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, don't we? But it keeps on going. There's a verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What Jesus desires of us is faithful obedience. It is doing the will of the Father. It is praying, thy will be done. 
And so what I need us to know this morning, what I want you to know is this, it's that faithfulness to the will of God, it comes from obedience to the word of God. And I think we get in our heads like, I don't know what God's will for my life is, I don't even know where to start. Start right here. Because faithfulness to the will of God is found in obedience. It comes from obedience to the word of God. And it's not obedience so that. It's but because of, right? It's not obedience so that God will love you. It's because of the love he's already poured out on you, amen? It is not obedience so that God will notice you and approve of you and give you a high five from heaven. No, it's because he's already chosen you and adopted you as his child. You are his son. You are his daughter. It's creation living in submission to its creator the one who knows what is best for us, who wants what is best for us, his children, and he has revealed that to us. He's revealed that to us in the written word of Scripture and the living word of his Son. He desires faithful obedience, but not only that, number two, what we see here is that Jesus desires an intimate relationship with us, doesn't he? Jesus, he desires an intimate relationship. He responds to all those people that had done these amazing things, declaring in verse 23, yeah, that's, that's really great. I'm glad you did all that, but here's the thing. I never knew you. Depart from me. And that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? It sounds a bit odd because I, I thought, haven't we talked about God being omniscient? Fancy theological term for saying that God is all-knowing that there is nothing he doesn't see or hear or know? Isn't God omniscient? Didn't he choose us before the foundation of the earth? Didn't he form me in my mother's womb? Didn't, didn't he know every hair on my head, for those of you that still have hair? Got less to remember on me? And Jesus, right? I thought Jesus was the son of God. I thought, you, you say this all the time, Pastor, I said he is fully, truly God, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. In him, the fullness of God dwells. So how can Jesus not know someone then? It's not what he means here. Jesus knows everything about you. He knows the things you don't want him to know. He sees and knows it all. What he means is that there's no intimate knowledge of each other. There's no intimate relationship with each other. He, Jesus, he desires so much more than mere proximity and familiarity. So often, I think we get caught up in doing for Jesus that we neglect to be with Jesus, don't we? I said the other week that um, reflecting my, uh, on the state of my heart going into vacation a few weeks ago, I said, uh, if you need a break from following Jesus, you're probably not faithfully following the way of Jesus. Something's not right. I'm not, I'm not blaming, it's just that was what I recognized in my own heart, that, that something's not right either in here, in your heart, or out there in the environment that you, you find yourself in. And I think what we find a lot of times, it's typically the result of doing for Jesus rather than being with Jesus. Doing with Jesus, putting us in environments we may not have should have been in, doing for Jesus and neglecting to just be with him. Man, Jesus, I, you know, Jesus doesn't desire some future cleaned up version of yourself. He doesn't desire some better version of yourself. He just desires yourself. 
the way you are. He didn't say, clean yourself up and come to me. He just said, come to me. Jesus, he is inviting us to abide in him as he abides in us. He's calling out to you, if you are tired, if you are hurt, and let's just be honest, I think that nails every one of us. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke and you will find rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His heart is gentle and lowly. Doing for Jesus leads to pride and arrogance. It leads to exhaustion and burnout. It leads to saying, look at what I did. Look at all I did for you. But being with Jesus, spending time with him, doing as a result of being, and that leads to intimacy with Jesus. You see, he, he desires to, for you to know him. He, he wants you to share those things with him that he already knows. He wants you to allow him to know you and for you to know him. Because here's the thing. What we begin to see is that intimacy with Jesus, it is formed through regular relationship with Jesus, isn't it? Right, intimacy with Jesus is formed by regular relationship with Jesus. And it's no secret, right? It's no different than any other relationship that we have. The less time you spend with someone, the less connected you feel with someone, correct? I think that's what makes hard-distance relationships, for those of you that tried that long-distance friendships, that's what makes them difficult. It's because it takes such a, an intentional effort to stay connected with them, doesn't it? There are those friends that you can go three years not talking to, you pick up the phone, and it's like, not, it's like you talked to them yesterday. But it involves you picking up the phone and sending that text, doesn't it? It involves staying connected. That's true of our relationship with friends, with family. That's true of our relationship with Jesus. But, you know, that's also true of our relationship with each other as a church family. What, we, what I think we've experienced over the last 18 months, what you, you may have felt in your own heart, is that the less often you worship with your church family, the less connected you feel to your church family, isn't it? And hear me, I'm not shaming, I'm not blaming, I'm not calling anybody out. But I think if, if you find yourself in this space of saying, I just, it doesn't even feel like my church anymore, I just don't, I don't feel connected anymore. Have you been here? Because the less often you worship together, the less connected you're going to feel. It's just natural. It begins to feel more foreign. It begins to feel less familiar. Someone's sitting in my seat. We haven't sat there in a few weeks or months. And I get massive frustrating, amen? You can say it. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's probably not one person here that likes the mask. It's okay. I don't like them. But here's what I want to ask us to do. Please don't let the mass become a barrier to us worshiping together. Amen? Don't let it be a barrier to us worshiping together. And so that's why next month, as we, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, we're going to start a series in the Old Testament prophet of Haggai called Renew. Because as we we've all know, we pursue what we prioritize. And so together, we are going to renew our priorities and renew our pursuit, our pursuit of God our pursuit of one another, and our pursuit of our neighbor together throughout this fall. Jesus, man, he doesn't want you to just say and do the right things, even things in his name. No, he wants you. 
and he wants you to follow him, to faithfully follow the way of Jesus, a way of faithful obedience, submitting your life to Jesus as Lord, not just saying it, but submitting, a way of intimate relationship with Jesus. And he goes on to follow his explanation with an illustration, one that I think ties together everything that we've seen here in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this illustration, Jesus, he, he poses a question to all these people that have gathered on the side of the hill of the Sea of Galilee, a question that he's posing to us here this morning. That question is, how will you respond? How will you respond to the words of Jesus over these last three chapters? How will you respond to his teaching? How will you respond to his way? And in this illustration, he shows us that there are only two options, only two ways to respond. You can receive the words of Jesus, living in faithful obedience to the way of Jesus, in an intimate relationship with Jesus, or you are free to reject. And he says here, he gives two examples in this illustration. He says in the first one, verse 24 and 25, a familiar illustration. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Any of y'all learned that song growing up? Wise man built his house about... I'm not going to sing anymore. Either you got it or you didn't. Yeah. I sing that every time. I was singing that as I read it. I was afraid I was going to read the lyrics rather than scripture there. But notice here, what makes this first man wise, it isn't what he knows, it's what he does. It's not knowledge, it's wisdom. It is the application of knowledge. He, he didn't say everyone who hears these words of mine will be like a wise man. He didn't say everyone who has these words memorized will be like wise men. He says everyone who hears these words and what? Does them. So wisdom isn't found in knowing your Bible. We should know Scripture. But it's not found in knowing your Bible. It's not found in memorizing every word of your Bible. It's found in living out every word. Every Sunday, one of the things I do, a new rhythm that I started, is I read a sermon by Eugene Peterson. You've probably heard me talk. If you've been here for like two weeks, you've heard me talk about Bonhoeffer and Peterson, haven't you? And uh, it's a collection of sermons in his book called as King Kesher, Kingfisher's Catch Fire. And in this morning's sermon that I read on Psalm 114, he says, what is the use of Scripture if you aren't living it? Like, what good is it if you're not living it? He says, our purpose in gathering each Lord's Day, each Sunday, is to prepare us to live what we hear, to get what we hear with our ears into our feet as we follow the way of Jesus. The way that we build our lives, the way that we build our house is through faithful obedience. And Jesus, he reveals two truths here in this illustration about those who faithfully follow the way of Jesus. And number one, it's that followers of Jesus are founded on the word. Right? Followers of Jesus are founded on the word. The first guy, he, he built his house on rock. Um, now, you know how handy I am. I've never built a house. I've never really built anything except out of Legos. And, um, but what I do know is you, you need to build something on a, on a firm, solid foundation if you want it to last, right? I've spent enough time with Dan and Dale to know that much. And in this area of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, right, you didn't just plop a house down on the surface. No, you had to dig uh, 10 upwards of maybe even 30 feet down into the ground to hit that bedrock, that firm foundation to build your house upon. 
And that's hard work. You ever dug down 10 to 30 feet? I haven't. Dug down a couple, and that was hard, so multiply that by a bit more. Growing up in Iowa, I, uh, I helped my, we grew up on a farm, and I helped my dad with a side business that he had of uh, building grain bins, those big round things that you see on a farm. I brought a picture, because whenever I say the big round things, everybody's like, oh, those big blue silos. No, 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 not those. Somebody else built those. We built these things, grain bins, store more specifically. And, uh, and the first thing that you do when you find where the farmer wants you to build it is you, you, you dig out a foundation. You dig a trench. And dad always had a rule of thumb. It's two spades wide and one spade deep. I will remember that for the rest of my life. If you need help building a grain bin, I can help you with digging the foundation. Two wide, one deep. And so you know what we would do is we'd all go try and grab the skinniest spade that he had on the truck. Don't grab the wide spade, that's just wider. Don't grab the deep spade, that's deeper. Dad threw all those away and he got one type of spade for all of us. But then after you dig that, you put a layer of sand down. Then you put your rebar out. Right about now, I'm a little bit nervous that Brandon in the back, who's a master of concrete, is going to say, no, that's not how you do it. I'm I'm good so far. Okay, you lay your rebar down, and then you pour just yards and yards of concrete. And what we would do is before the concrete would dry, we would always uh, date the concrete, and uh, Dad would let me put my my handprint in it. And uh, so across southeast Iowa, there are scores of grain bins with, with an ever-growing handprint. I think we started probably when I was like three or four up to when I graduated high school. Yeah, oh, that's right. And uh, one time, I'm pretty sure I was, my boys are 10. I was younger than them. And there was this high school schooler, Aaron Berg. I don't know why I remember that name. Uh, he, uh, he got me to believe how cool it would be if I did my nose print in the concrete. And so amongst all those grain bins in southeast Iowa with my handprint in it, there's also one with my nose print. If y'all find it, will you send me a picture of that? I have no idea where it is, but I remember doing it. But man, you need a strong foundation to build a grain bin on. Because it's going to store upwards of 10,000 bushels of corn. It's going to weigh up to 250 tons of corn on that slab. And so a farmer would never even consider entrusting something as valuable as his harvest on a weak foundation. And the same is true for us in our lives. And what we begin to see, what I need us to know from this, is that the stability of your life will be determined by the stability of the foundation on which you build your life. The stability of your life will be determined by the stability of the foundation upon which you built your life. And so what have you built your life on? Be honest. What have you built your life on? What is that foundation? What is and who is that source of truth that you turn to on which you build your life? What is that belief system that you adhere to? That moral code, whatever it may be, what is it that is the foundation for your life? Because Jesus says the wise man built his foundation on these very words that he had spoken. Foundation for us, it is the written Word of God, the words written on these pages. It is Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. God is the rock of our salvation, amen? Jesus is the cornerstone. And with his gospel of salvation, with his good news of the coming kingdom, with his gift of eternal life, that is the foundation on which Jesus wants to build our lives. Because look at what happens When our lives are founded on the word. Notice he says when the rains fall. Not if, but when the rains fall. 
When the floods come, when the winds blow and they beat on you, and they will, he says, you will not fall. Why? Because you are founded on the rock. And that's because the second thing we see here is that followers of Jesus are sustained by the word. Right? We are sustained in the storm. Our lives are sustained in the storm by that same word. But also notice, Jesus didn't promise that the rains would never come, did he? Jesus never promised the rains would never come. In fact, Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Do not be surprised at the rains when they come as though something strange were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. He never promised they'd never come. He never promised that there would not be dark days. He never promised that the floods wouldn't rush in. He never promised that there wouldn't be those days where it feels like you can barely keep your nose above water. He he never promised that the winds wouldn't blow. He never promised that there wouldn't be those days where you just feel beaten down. No, what Jesus did promise you is that a life founded on God will be sustained by God. And we've all been in the midst of a rather massive storm these last 18 months, haven't we? A storm that not even the best meteorologist knows when it's going to come to an end. But not only have we been in that storm, we have had other storms rise up throughout that storm, haven't we? One right after another. And as the water gets higher, as the, as the winds beat down on you, you begin to wonder how much more you can take, how much longer you're going to be able to stand. And it's in those moments that I hope you're sitting in the silence and listening because what I think we hear God saying in those moments is stop doing what I never intended you to do on your own. Stop trying to stand up to this storm under your own power. Stop trying to be strong enough and good enough. In those moments, I I hope you hear God calling out to you, come to me, abide in me, right? Trust in me, knowing that even if this storm takes your very life, you will not fall. You will not fall because you will live with me for eternity. You will be with me because of me. We are sustained in the storm by the words in this very book, aren't we? The promises that we find in this book. We are sustained by the God who spoke these words, the, the spirit who inspired these words. The son who will fulfill every promise that we find in these words. Those of us who hear these words and do them. Listening to his words and living out these words. Because Jesus also goes on to say that to those who hear but do not do, to those who listen but do not live out, he says in verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house just as they did against the house on the rock. Only this house, it fell and it didn't just fall, but great was the fall of it. This is what happens when you enter through the wide gate. This is what happens when you pursue the easy way. This is what happens when we don't dig down that 10 to 30 feet to bedrock on which to build our lives. This is what happens when we're deceived into following the easy way, a way that builds your life on something that will not last, on something that will only wash away when the storm comes. 
And when the storms come and the winds blow, not if, but when, if your life is not founded on God, Jesus says you will fall and great will be your fall. And so you have a choice this morning. You have a choice. How will you respond to the words of Jesus? Matthew, he closes this initial discourse in his gospel saying, and when Jesus finished the things, the crowds, they were astonished at his teaching. They were blown away by this. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. He wasn't like any other rabbi. He wasn't like any other teacher. He spoke with authority and not as their scribes. You can receive these words of Jesus. I pray that you would receive these words. I pray that you would believe them to be true. I would pray that you would would believe them to have authority, trusting them because of the one who spoke them, living in faithful obedience to them. You can receive them or you can reject them. As many did in in John 6. Many, it says, turned their back and no longer walked with Jesus. They're like, nah, that's too hard. I don't want that. I'm gonna go build me a sandcastle. And when the, the crowds left Jesus, he, he turned to his 12 disciples and he said to them, do you want to go away as well? Is it too hard for you guys as well? If it is, it's okay. We'll just, we'll just call it right now. Go ahead. We'll let scripture write about the eight disciples or the four disciples or the two disciples, not the 12. And Peter, on behalf of the group, he responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else are we going to follow? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. My prayer is that you would believe in his words and that you would believe in the one who spoke these words. My prayer is that you would live in faithful obedience to his words and have an intimate relationship with the one who spoke these words. My prayer is that you would join us on this journey this lifelong journey of faithfully following the way of Jesus, a way of love, and that we would journey together, amen? That is my prayer. That, if you wanna know my vision for this church, that's it right there. It's not very sexy, is it? I wanna be a family that faithfully follows Jesus together, and I'd like you to invite you on that journey. And so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna give you a time of silent reflection and prayer. I want you to think about some of the words that Jesus has spoken, not just today, but over this whole series, this whole Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to make that decision today. And know that this decision is, for some of you, a recommitment, a renewing of that commitment, one that I think we need to make occasionally. When we recognize that we have strayed, when we recognize that we've been sitting for too long, that we need to live and follow the way of Jesus, that requires action. Some of you may have never made that decision, and I pray that you would now. I pray that the Spirit would stir in our hearts in this moment of silence. And then I'm going to pray over us. And then I'm going to lead us in remembering and celebrating that love that God has poured out on us through communion. And so I want to give you the next moment, few moments to pray silently. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.